Hello, this is Dr. Casey Bradley, and you're listening to The Real P3, a podcast dedicated to the real pork producers around the world. I hope you enjoy. In this week's episode, we're going to speak to a PhD student at South Dakota State University studying sow stress and how nutrition may play a role. Her name is Shannon Durkee. And she also grew up on a hog farm in Nebraska. So she has some background working in swine production as well. But we're going to not only talk about her cool research, but we're going to focus on what it takes to relate and engage with the younger generation and how we can attract talent into our swine production systems. Well, hello, Shannon. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your background for the audience? Sure. So my name is Shannon Durking. Um, I'm currently a, I just started my second year PhD program here at South Dakota State University. I'm working under Dr. Crystal Levesque, studying guilt, reproductive development, and then also hoping to do a little bit of nutrition. So I originally hail from Southeast Nebraska, little town called Cook, about an hour and a half or so south of Lincoln, Nebraska, so the capital of the United States. I was about 30 minutes from the Kansas border, just to middle of farmland. I mean, you know, I grew up in agriculture. My dad had about six or seven years before I was born, he started his own farrow to finish hog farm. He did it all by himself. So we were very small in the grand scheme of things, probably even smaller than would be considered small nowadays, but it kept him really busy. He also Uh, farms, raises corn and soybeans. So growing up, I have been immersed in the nitty gritty of livestock my whole life. I had this, my family and I joke, I had this old denim jacket that I always wore into the farrowing room and it always got pooped on. My mom spent a lot of time washing that jacket because I was always holding baby pigs. I remember the very first time that I actually got to sleeve a sow because my hand was smaller than my dad's and it was the coolest thing I think I'd ever done. So growing up, obviously, like any farming family, we had our share of tribulations because it's agriculture and it it's a hit and miss sometimes. And so we had some hard years, but it really, the agriculture and the animal side of things just really interested me. So I went to undergraduate at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, initially wanting to go to veterinary school and organic chemistry hated me. We weren't friends, never will be friends. I don't like chemistry, it doesn't like me. So after organic chemistry, I decided to change, Made I focused more on just the animal science and I was putzing around trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And graduate school came up. I actually spoke to Dr. Phil Miller at UNL there. I was taking um, a nutrition class from him at the time and he gave me several options of professors who'd maybe reach out to that would be doing some sow stuff. And I ended up crossing paths with Dr. Lindemann um, at the University of Kentucky. So he thought that I was a good candidate. So he took me on and I moved from Tecumseh, Nebraska when I'd never lived out of the state to Lexington, Kentucky for two years. And I did my master's there in sound nutrition, focusing on the impact of feeding essential oils on the sow fecal dry matter, and then also her uh, piglet performance during farrowing as well. So I got exposed to a lot. I made some great memories there. And Dr. Lindemann really helped me get my feet wet 
in the graduate school aspect. And when I first started my master's, I really wasn't considering a PhD. I was ready to be done with school. And lo and behold, there were other plans for me in that regard. And so I reached out the beginning of my second year and ended up talking to Dr. Crystal Levesque. She proposed this idea to me and I say the rest is kind of history. It wasn't really history. I went and visited and got stuck here in a snowstorm. And now I'm talking to you in the middle of a snowstorm. So that's really life, just full circle all the way around, you know. And maybe you know why I don't live up there anymore because yes, that happens a lot this time of year. (laughs) Yeah, so there's that. So I've been, I started July um, 8th of 2019 here. I defended um, about a week before that from at UK they surprisingly passed me, you know, kicked me out the door, whatever you want to call it. And with that organic chemistry. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) And so away I went to here and they got the guilts in for my research the very next day. So it was literally hit the ground running. And eight months later, the first cohort of my animals was done. And so I've been, I say knee deep, but COVID happened. So that really slowed progress in my life. But the nice thing about Dr. Levesque is she really encourages expanding on ideas. So I have a tendency to go into her office with a harebrained idea. And while she doesn't always support them because they are obnoxious and weird, there are times where she's like, that's not a bad idea. Do some research. Let me know. And so as part of that, we're looking at cortisol levels during uh, peripartrant gilts, um, during farrowing. And that- Okay, well, stop right there. What does that mean for the producer? Because this is a producer. So the goal of that is first, so we know based off of human reproduction and I guess general knowledge, so to speak, we know that cortisol in farrowing is obviously going to be, there's an issue, it's initiated by several things, prostaglandins, but really what kickstarts it and tells mama's body that, hey, I've got to hit eject on this oven right now. The timer's gone off. Let's roll. Is going to be uh, fetal fetal cortisol levels leading up to that. So the fetuses are like, mm, I'm ready. I've cooked. Let's go. I want to hit the ground and move on. So what we're doing right now is just trying to get an idea of how that changes over the farrowing period. So we're seeing that there's a correlation with over, like, so obviously litter size is impacting that. Of course, the more fetal cortisol available, the more there is. But now we're really trying to look at the data and get an idea of how can we change potentially farrowing protocols for the producer. So is there something, what we're kind of toying with the idea is that there's something that we could maybe administer to help uh, speed along the farrowing process. So one thing that we're, we kind of, we're, looking at, I'm doing some research on, but it's not super promising, but is the, is dexmethasone injection, because that's something that typically is on farm available. The only downside is is that in dairy cattle, it can actually really hinder milk production, which is not ideal in the grand scheme of things. So that's probably not another way, but another thing that we're considering that actually is probably even more versatile and available is oxytocin. So can we potentially, if we administer oxytocin at, say, a certain time point, are we going to hopefully have a positive impact on overall farrowing duration to potentially help that guilt or sow just move a little bit better? Hopefully a little less assisting that has to come overall. And that might also help our, you know, first-time moms that could maybe, you know, there's a lot going on in her body. She's probably a little confused at first litter. And so just to keep things moving for her, I think, could be really beneficial and 
might cause us to uh, revisit some of our farrowing protocols that we have on farm. Well, this may date me and maybe you can explain to the audience even from your father's protocols, but you know, I worked back for new fashion pork in, Oh, I'm not even going to give you the year. Let's just say it's been 20 years, but you know, we had this protocol that we gave oxytocin every 30 minutes to an hour, no matter, regardless if the sow was having problems or not. Since then, fast forward, we've changed that to some producers don't give oxytocin at all. Some producers give oxytocin at the initiation of parturition or at the end for clean out. And mm-hmm. we add all this up and there's so much discussion around that. There's so much discussion today, especially coming out of Peter Thiel's work on farrowing duration, things we can do with nutrition, stillborns. Um, I lis- listened to Ron Ketchum speak at Passion for the Pigs and he took you know the very scientific work that you've done and put it into practice and it works, right? Mm-hmm. So ultimately from your practical experience, if you can master the right time of estrogen and contractions, I shouldn't say estrogen, but it's all prostaglandins, mm-hmm. cortisol that goes into this process. What do you think the end result is? Is it going to give a specific protocol for oxytocin injections that we don't have today? Are we going to end that debate of, you know, how much oxytocin to use and when? Is that what you're hoping for with your research? Not necessarily, because when I was initially looking into this research with Dr. Levesque, my actually my my biggest curiosity or point of what I really wanted to look at was if sleeving intensity impacted her cortisol levels, because there are different, it varies Bond Farm, it varies however many sounds they have going. We, even at SDSU, we have certain, pro, like how the barn handles things versus how we handle things if they're a research animal for our trial for consistency purposes. And so for me, I was kind of thinking, are we stressing out the sow in any way? Like if she's already under duress because her body is doing these things. Oh, she's under duress. I can tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, say I'm, I'm not even stressed. I'm not having babies. I'm stressed. So I'm sure she's up. That was my other question. Are you taking your cortisol levels? Because I knew during farrowing week, my my cortisol levels were probably through the roof every time I heard a baby pig scream and running around taking care of all the sows and and pigs. So are you doing anything along that route too to compare that to the caretakers? No, I don't need to see how stressed I'm in. I'm in grad school. I already know. I'm fine. I'm already there. And so if the audience doesn't know, Shannon and I have been in touch. Um, I probably followed her career because she studied under Dr. Lindemann. And so I've heard all about her from Dr. Lindemann and how great of a student she was, but I got to know Shannon a little bit better this fall. Tell me about the tribulations of agriculture and that mindset. You have a totally different mindset than most students. Talk about some of those tribulations and, and how that's shaped you into the professional you are today. So I think one aspect of agriculture that, while I think there's, I mean, everybody goes through stuff, right? I'm never going to, nobody is exempt from that, but there's just something about agriculture in the fact that things can change so much on a dime, I guess. So for instance, my dad will plant in the spring. We work alongside him all day for however long until planting gets done through the breakdowns, through 
seed care, like getting through the seed tender, moving that around for him. And you could have get not quite enough rain that your yields are just junk at the end of the year. And then the year comes around and you have to plan how you're going to pay for the new seed and all the things that go into it to keep trying. And I feel like there's an aspect for agriculture and farmers, I'll say that for Papa John, that you just, a lot, there's a lot of people that would probably just give up, but there's an aspect of agriculture that they have a duty, a promise to what they're trying to produce for who they're trying to produce it for, that they're able to push through that, even when they're down in the dumps and they're miserable. And I think it takes a really special kind of person to understand to love what they're doing, to be passionate about it. And I think that's kind of an aspect about agriculture is that there's a lot of passion in it and they catch a lot of flack because of issues that arise. And I think at the end of the day, being passionate about what they're doing is kind of sets them apart from a lot of different careers. So you just brought it in perspective, passion, caring, cortisol levels and sows. We want to make sure you know, we're taking care of them the best we can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because if you're like me, you love them more than yourself sometimes or your own children or family members. But, they are my girls. They are my yeah. girls. <laughs> yeah, nobody messed with my girls. Um, yeah, <laughs> I get it. So in the past, we've talked about this passion. We talked about labor shortage. Your family did it all. Talk about that need for properly trained labor because I find it interesting a lot of these students who have the most passion they're not going back to run their family farm they're Mm -hmm. getting masters and PhDs and they're becoming the leaders of agriculture what are we lacking to get more people to want to go back to the farm I think for so one hand I think providing so that proper training is obviously important But I think providing people the opportunity to continue to learn and actually gain more responsibilities, maybe is the word I'm looking for, would be better. Being a power washer for the rest of your life. Right. Like nobody, I was talking to one of my friends the other day. We had to uh, get a room ready for the new wean group that came out on Monday. And I was saying that I don't mind power washing once I'm started, but I loathe getting, cause I know I'm going to get wet and it's just going to be cold and I'm going to shiver and I'm not happy about it. But once you're in and you're done, it's, you know, but it's something that has to be done. But I think there's a lot of people, especially if they come from maybe non-ag backgrounds, but they're trying to find a steady job or learn a different aspect um, of swine production that they don't always get the opportunity to continue to move up or gain more responsibilities to become like a lead or a supervisor or stuff like that. So I think that's one aspect. And part of that I think is maybe them, they not taking the initiative, but I also think that's a lack of maybe higher up supervisors, not necessarily seeing the potential for somebody because sometimes people aren't always outgoing, but they work really hard, but they might seem complacent, so to speak, sometimes, because they're not always asking maybe those tough questions or asking like, hey, show me this or hey, show me that. And so like with my dad, he tried to hire a couple of even seasonal help for farming to like run the machinery. And he struggled with it because he would start them on this one task and he had a hard time even releasing those 
grips, so to speak, you know, to allow them to learn other at now, sometimes they did mess up and it cost him money and he was a cranky, cranky bear, but that's also human. Like I'm sure Lindemann could tell you many stories how I mess up. Like that's grads, that's human. That's what we, I'm not saying it's happy. I, you know, I had to explain to Dr. Levesque that I messed up a piece of equipment in our lab the other day. And that was not a Christmas gift I wanted to give her, but it happens. You know, like, and that's, so I think being able to roll with those punches is really, and I think that's also what sets, um, like, from an agricultural perspective, like, you're right, there are a lot of students not, that go on and get their master's and PhD and they're not returning to the farm, but I also remember a distinct conversation my first year that I attended Midwest as a graduate student, and I ran into um, a former student of Dr. Lindemann's, and we were just chatting, and he asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, you know, I, I think it, I'm considering getting my PhD, so if I do that, like, I want to work with industry, but then someday I really also still want to have my own farm. Like, that is important to me. That matters to me. And he looked at me, and he goes, why would you get your PhD if all you want to do is run a farm? And it was that attitude that all you're doing is running a farm is what makes me angry, very, very angry. And that's where, for me, I want to be a better, like, advocate and show people that it's not just running a farm. Like, I take that personally with what my family has worked really hard, even on a very small level, what people work really hard to do every day. Amen. (laughs) So I heard two really good things you brought up. And, of course, you know, you're learning from me. Um, you've gotten to know me and my life has changed a lot in the last year. Hey, I don't have a farm. I've always wanted to have my own farm. I'm still working on getting the right investors to have my research farm and make my dream you mm-hmm. know, possible. Mm-hmm. So I do understand that because there is something about growing up on a farm that makes you want to go back. Mm-hmm. But I think there's also this disconnect because I've worked with a lot of um, immigrant employees that come up Mm -hmm. from Mexico and other parts of Central America early in my career. And I've worked with a lot of on-farm workers, not just immigrants, but they're starving for information. Mm -hmm. They're starving for knowledge. They're starving to understand why they do what they do. And Mm -hmm. we fail them as Mm -hmm. managers, as professionals, we fail them by not teaching them why it's important And it didn't matter what part of the industry I worked in, either on the hog farm or I go into the production plant of the guys producing my enzymes to sell. They want to know why do they use phytase in pig diets? Why is it so important? You know, people are thirsty for knowledge, but I would even say the younger generation is thirsty for a purpose. You know, Mm -hmm. they want to have a purpose in life. And I've had some crazy ideas of how to change management, manage farms differently. But, you know, the number one problem I'm hearing is from the producers I've talked to this year, too many pigs being born and not enough labor. That's probably Mm -hmm. the main two things I hear consistently. What do we do with all these pigs? They're not, you know, able to take care of themselves anymore and not enough labor. So it's a problem we have. You have a unique perspective. I have a unique perspective. What are some potential solutions, Shannon? So I think from a student perspective, 
always being willing, like it's hard in everyday life, you know, like on farm because there's always a lot going on as a, but I'll use my dad and myself as an example. So I was your typical kid. I asked a lot of questions. I probably annoyed him more times than not, depending on the day and what was going on. Like, that's fine. But I learned and the, the things that are important to me and what I learned and what I carry forward in my life, I learned because he took the time to tell me, even if it was five minutes, 10 minutes out of his day, just randomly explaining like, this is what this is for. So I think being open to wanting to teach people, because the more you teach people, the more people teach, the more people are going to enjoy what they do. And the more they're going to have a positive outlook on the career they're trying to get into. But we have to start seeing it as feeding that thirst that you talked about, like providing that information, whether it's five minutes here, five minutes there, just talking to them and explaining why. So this summer we had a commercial trial in like north and west of here, I think. And we worked with some, uh, their labor was mostly immigrant farm workers and they wanted, we had such great conversations with them and they'd see us bustling around and they'd ask us a couple of things. We gave, um, one of the gals was interested in a graduate program. So we gave her our contact information so that if she had any questions at any point, she could reach out to us, you know, just providing, we're already here. So just making, connecting those bridges to give people contacts and networking themselves, I think is super important. And I think that as an industry, we haven't always done the best job of being open, I think, with information in that regard. We would like to take this break to thank our sponsors, the Sunswine Group, NutriSign, Swine Nutrition Management, and Pig Progress. Without their support, this adventure would not be possible. So now back to our episode. Very good points. I mean, and it translates into our consumers mm-hmm. and policymakers. Mm-hmm. How do we bridge that gap? So policymakers, I'm probably not the best person to talk about that because I there's a lot about policy that I don't understand. Uh, but as far as pages plus, right? <laughs> Yes, exactly. (laughs) And so, um, but for me, for consumers, so I'm actually an Operation Main Street virtual tour guide. And what that is for those listeners that haven't heard of that before. So it's a program funded by the National Pork Board. And what that does is we um, basically through Zoom, we Zoom in and it can be uh, college clubs, it can be dietitians, it can be doctors, I think even some policymakers, any group can do it. And what they do is they zoom into us here at the Swine Education Research Facility. So our research barn here at SDSU, and we give them a tour, a live tour of the farrowing room. And what that does is that provides us to kind of open that narrative for questions. So we break down some of those common myths, or, you know, I've had a lot of questions about why do we keep sows in crates, you know, or like, why are they housed indoors anymore or things like that? They'll ask us just questions about the piglets and our piglet care and what happens to those piglets once they're done in the farrowing room. And so I think being able to a provide them a real life look into what we're doing is important because there's no smoke show. 
right? Like, I think that's some of the problem with consumer perception. They don't always trust everything they hear because they do hear about the bad stuff. There are bad people in the world. There's bad pork producers, there's bad cattle guys. It doesn't, there's always going to be bad people, but showing that there's more good than bad and showing that at the end of the day, the steps we're taking is because we care about the pigs and the health of the pigs, I think is really important. So doing that this past semester really opened my eyes to, there are kids that have, have never seen a baby pig before. So even seeing it on camera was just eye-opening for them, you know? And so I think that's one aspect being more, I think doing the virtual tours on not just at SDSU, but other farms as I know there's biosecurity that obviously has to be respected, but I think just providing a more open, being more open to those discussions or photos or tours or something like that, I think could be really, really beneficial. And it'll help cut down some of that, some of those shadows that I think consumers have about the industry. How do we show the bad side of our industry? Because there are bad, bad Mm -hmm. things about our industry. None Mm -hmm. of us want to kill a baby pig. Yeah. For instance, well, and how do you, so, sorry, I mean, I just, how do you walk through that with the consumers and people and even people wanting to go work with us? How do we get over that? I mean, cause I yeah. think that's part of the problem of getting people to come work for us. There's lots of people who love animals and love babies, mm-hmm. but the negative side of our industry of it's food. How do we get back to that to where you and I love our animals and our pigs so much mm-hmm. yet I always get asked, how do you eat them? Yeah. Well, because for me, I mean, it was always, so I guess for me, prime example was growing up, we'd have some of the, like if we get a lame pig, a lame pig would come up, say closer to market. My dad would make me take care of it until it became either well enough that it could go on like after say antibiotics or we took it to the locker ourselves and that was our own personal pig. So I still had to take care of them, hand feed them one pig, you know, give it pets the usual up until the day it was no longer on farm. But for me, I'm, it is food, but because at the end of the day, our goal is to still help feed the world right? Like we care about these pigs, but we also care about our families and our neighbors and providing a safe quality food source that's necessary, good in nutrients, you know, for our bodies beyond that. And so we give the pigs the best life that we can. Hopefully that is a goal of mine anyway. You know, I can't speak for everybody. It's a goal of mine. But at the end of the day, I also know that like I have given the best that I can for their their livelihoods and they will also give me the best that they can in the long run. And so while it's hard to talk about say euthanizing a baby piglet, especially one that's struggling for me, I've also seen the extreme of that. I've seen people try to keep baby piglets alive for that really shouldn't because they're struggling and they just aren't, they aren't going to make it. And so we can keep them alive with, milk replacer and things like that, but they'll never flourish and they'll never truly be healthy. And that also doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound like a good life for them either, you know? And I would like to think that at the end of the day, the pigs that I have because of my care, they can flourish. 
you just demonstrated what we all need to do. Transparency, honor, love, respect. And I think those are, that's great advice to give. And I always ask that because there is this perception of food as we go to plant-based meats. Um, we go to lab-grown meats. And, you know, if that's ever an op- option or requirement, I think I'll go vegetarian instead. But how do we, t- I mean, we have to have these tough conversations because it's, it's a mindset, I think. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're going to have to overcome as producers as well of showing that. And I think, you know, we should put you on a center stage in every school across America of the passion of a farmer and the love that you have for your animals, because that's what we live every day. But how do we get that in our employees? I'm asking you some tough questions. There's probably not a really good answer. No, that's, I mean, I don't have a clear answer. I wish that it was a very straightforward answer. If it was, I think we'd have it in a book and a manual published to all farms across the U.S. and beyond um, as far as an employee handbook. But for me, I, I thrive in situations where I'm appreciated, appreciated I'm allowed to grow. So for me as a potential future leader with whatever employees or whoever I oversee, my goal is to nurture that option that they can ask whatever questions they want, good, bad, ugly. And while I have to walk them through the ugly and the painful and everything like that, I think also just showing that you're human and you're tied to them, those animals as much as say they could be, I think is important. And so really adding that human aspect to them. So for me, when I do my virtual tours, a lot of times they will be one of my former guilts from my trials in the fairing room. And I always stop by her crate and I always give her scratches behind the ears. And one of them has an attitude. She doesn't like me and that's fine. But the others are like, oh, I remember you. I'm like, yeah, I used to feed me fruit snacks. We were friends. Cool, you know? And so for when those animals leave the herd, I'm sad. If for some reason we have to euthanize for some reason, I take it personally because those were my animals at one point. And so adding more of a human aspect of that care. And I think it starts from, especially if it's somebody that maybe hasn't worked in agriculture before, just showing them the passion that they could have and how much those animals matter and paying attention to, for instance, those like that, the animal care aspects, right? Like making sure that you're handling the animals properly and safely and reiterating that and just showing that or walking through your barns and just looking at all the girls. Some of them are more frisky than others. Some of them want to be pet more than others, but I think that would help. You just, you adding that human aspect, I really think will help communicate to potential future employees and hopefully retain employees because I think you can help foster that passion, maybe not a passion for pigs. You know, it's, they've got a smell and sometimes they have an attitude, but same. So I think just fostering that, fostering the passion for what you do and whether that their outlook is fostering the passion to create a sustainable, like to help create that sustainable food stores or doing the best for the environment while creating this, the most sustainable product that we can or the animal side of things, you know, like creating the happiest, safest, healthiest pigs that we can, whatever avenue they choose. 
for their passion, just making sure to foster that passion for what they're doing. Great advice. Couple last points. Where do you see the industry in five years? I think I know where I see you in five years and I think the audience does, but where do you see the industry going in the next five years? I hope that the industry can, and they're starting to make strides for that. So I hope it continues, but I really hope that they continue to have a more open conversation with consumers as well as policymakers. Like I said, policymakers are a whole different world, but putting people on the ground for those tough conversations with those policymakers. Like for instance, I could have a conversation with a policymaker and they could see that I'm very passionate, but I, I couldn't talk policy to save my life. I don't want to, you know, that's not my interest, but putting people on the ground that still have that agricultural passion and the pork production passion, but still can talk the tough stuff with those policymakers. So I just think when we have our little, I guess I'll just use it as a baseball reference. We have our lineup of batters and just making sure that all of the positions are covered in depth with quality people who really care and are passionate, but can go out and do great things. From processing or power washing to talking to the secretary of agriculture. Mm -hmm. I love it. Last thing I do for my guests, I allow them to turn the table. And usually I, I make a disclaimer that almost anything is open for conversation or ask. So you get to ask me a question now. Oh no, she's thinking here. <laughs> what advice do you have for female graduate students trying to implement themselves into the swine industry, which I know that there's a lot more females in agriculture. The percentages obviously are much greater than they used to be, but I think there are still producers of the male variety with certain attitudes, opinions that, you know, females are fragile. Females shouldn't do X, Y, and Z. And while my first opinion is to respond with all the sass that Papa John taught me, <laughs> doesn't always solve the problem. So your advice. No, I think that's a, a very tough question. And you could talk about any parts of society. And as we struggle as a society, moving from what we consider traditional gender roles into you know, more diversity and different structures and different leadership. You know, that's a tough question because we do. And the unfortunate thing is if you talk to Dr. Lindemann and other professors that, you know, are as senior as him in his career, their comments are, is the male is becoming the minority in more advanced degrees, animal science. You, you look at the undergraduate classes, most of them are pre-vet and most of them are female. And you look at vet school applications and most of them are females. So I think the dynamic has really shifted in my career from 20 years ago until now. So the opportunity for you is a lot different, but you know, my biggest piece of advice is it's okay as a female to say you can't do something um, because I had that sass and that attitude that, okay, I'll go on dead duty. Okay. this is 700 pounds out. No problem. I'll get her out. And there are, I had to 
learn limitations, physical limitations that I had. I never had mental limitations, right? Physical limitations of that. I can't do some of the work and that is truly, I mean, and I think, you know, there are some characteristics in certain genders that work better in different parts of production. And so, but we're talking graduate school here. And, you know, physical limitations shouldn't be an issue for us. And hopefully by the time you finish your PhD that you don't have to drag out too many dead 700 pounds house. But um, yeah, you, you learn how to be innovative in that situation when she's seven times your size or something and uh, she's kind of bloated and all that. Not very fun people. So I think that is one thing you could work on as an industry is how do we create innovation and things to make people's jobs easier. I don't care if you're a female or a man, you know, how can we make it e physically easier for us, right? And physically better for the animals. Human safety and animal safety have to be the same. And that's where, you know, I think between policy and consumers, we don't really think about human safety. I don't think many of those policy makers ever been chased down by a mean sow in the pasture because you were processing her baby pigs and, you know, you had to fight her off with whatever you had in your hand. And or when you raised them in Smedley's, you had to run out into the hut to get her outside and then run back in and slam the door shut. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So physically there's things we can do and we need to be innovative because we need to accommodate people who aren't the linebackers of the football team working in our industry. But we go to graduate school and just roll with the punches and you're going to take your, your bruises either verbally, physically, whatever, you know, and just don't give up, be yourself. Don't take it personal, you know, and prove them wrong. Right. I've had to prove everybody wrong my whole life. I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I am probably one of the hardest working people you'll ever meet. And so I outworked everybody. I studied harder. I worked harder. And, you know, I found out 20 years later, I just had to be Casey. You know, I had mm -hmm. to shine and be good at what I am good at. And I may not appease everybody. Not everybody may like me. I may not sell Phytase or whatever you guys remember me as to everyone. But I think be yourself. Be true to yourself. Be the expert. Know where you're not the expert at, but know how to solve problems, right? If you're not the expert, find the answer. And that is how you're going to succeed. Am I going to say it's going to be perfect, Shannon? No. I would say that if you're a male asking that question mm -hmm. of how do I succeed. I don't think it's a gender issue. I think it's a self-confidence issue. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, a people issue that, you know, we all have to support each other, but a lot of people all think we have to be some, like this person or, or that person over there. And we need to be true to ourselves, do what makes us happy. Um, you know, use our strengths and our skills and then understand our weaknesses and either how to figure out how to use those weaknesses as your strengths. Okay. And regardless of gender, let's just take that off the table today the only thing that's stopping you from living your dream is you. But yet surround yourself with people who want to see you succeed 
and don't give time to the doubters. And that's the best piece of advice I can give you. It's great. Thank you. Well, that was an interesting conversation for the Real P3 podcast. We started out with cortisol levels in, in sows and oxytocin use and ended up on career advice. So this is what happens when you get people like Shannon in the room. But I'd like to thank you for your time. And I think you brought up some good points as we enter this new year and the new swine industry of transparency. And I think a lot of things you said passionate about pigs, but I really think I heard in their passion for your people. It's just as important. So thanks for the great advice. You guys want to follow Shannon? I really recommend it because she's going to be a rock star. And I wish you guys the best. And as always, thank you for listening. And if you get a chance, hug a pig today for me. Thank you, Casey. Thank you. Before we go today, I just wanted to thank our sponsors again, the Sunswine Group, NutriSign, Swine Nutrition Management, and Pig Progress. Thank you for listening. And if you get a chance, hug a pig today for me.